Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. We're here um, because of your grace. God, I know there's people in this room that uh, don't believe the stuff we're going to talk about and don't believe the Bible that we're going to talk from. Um, But God, I even believe that they're here because of your grace. And I pray that you put it on display today. You tell us to taste and see that you are good. I pray that in some way you would work your ways, which are far beyond my ways, and help us to taste and see how incredible your grace is, how good your good news is, the gospel. Um, And God, you'd show us Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we're in the second week of looking at the letter of Paul to Titus. First Timothy, second Timothy, and Titus are all pastoral epistles. If you want a Bible, because we're going to be talking from it, raise your hand and uh, somebody that has these will get you a Bible. Otherwise, open an app up on your phone. So this is one of the pastoral epistles, which just means this. The Apostle Paul is training Timothy and Titus, here Titus, how to conduct themselves in the household of God, the church. So they're speaking to them of what it means to be a leader and how to specifically lead in the situation they find themselves in. So in this situation, Titus is leading on the island of Crete and he's leading churches there. And Paul's ultimately starts this by saying, you need to appoint more leaders into these churches. The theme throughout the book of the Titus is what Ricardo talked about last week, that believing the gospel enables and empowers gospel living. So gospel believing empowers gospel living. Now you may sit there and go, I'm not even totally certain what that means or what the gospel is. In simple form to all of you, Christians and non-Christians, here's the statement. What you believe affects how you behave. What you believe affects how you behave. Now, here's one challenge we have a little bit when we come to the Bible is most of us that are in this room hear the word belief and we think about it only in rational terms or only cognitively that belief is about what I think. Now, the Bible would say, as would modern research, that belief, in fact, is not less than how you think but it's much more than what you think. The Bible wouldn't say, in fact, say that belief is about what you love, that you live out of what you love. You do what you do because that's what you love. What you believe will ultimately satisfy you. Now, one of the things the Bible understands, as do any great leaders, fundamentally, is that belief is shaped in multiple ways. It is shaped based upon what people say to you and what you're taught but it's shaped even more so by who you're around and what you do on a regular basis. So if our beliefs are shaped by what we're around, the who we're around, the community, and the culture in which we live in, you've got to understand that when Paul's speaking to Titus, he has deeply embedded in his mind, as does every other biblical author, that the culture in which these people live, that They're being called to live out of a lifestyle. That culture that they're supposed to live out in the midst of will shape them and does shape them. Tim Chester speaking about Crete in his commentary on Titus and speaking about Crete in relation to how we would apply it in the modern world says this. 
Living the good life of the gospel is always a challenge when we live in a wider culture that defines the good life in other ways. I love the phrase good life because everybody's trying to live into the good life or out of the good life or find the good life. Here's the challenge. The Bible very clearly defines what the good life is. And the good life in short, this may not mean a lot to a lot of you, but the good life in short is life in Christ. Life in Christ is the good life. The challenge is the whole world from the commercials that we see on TV to the advertisements you find on your phone to your Facebook feed to your news feed, right, to the advertisements on the streets, to the malls you shop in or the short stores you shop at, to the food that you eat, to the cars that you drive are all communicating to you something other than what the Bible says the good life is. Because I don't think many advertisements that you see, many stores that you shop at, many of those places are saying the good life's found in Christ, right? So they're all communicating something not 100% untrue, Right? You're human beings and you have to eat. And we're human beings who've made cars. We're going to drive cars. We're going to sell stuff. So there's going to be advertising. It's not saying those things are evil, which we'll get at that in a minute. But they're telling an alternative story. He says that's the challenge of living out the gospel when you're living in a culture that defines the good life in other ways from what the gospel does. It is particularly hard in a culture where newspapers cannot be trusted. And politicians are corrupt. A harsh, selfish... Racist culture in which there is a fear of crime, a culture where people are reluctant to do manual work, which is therefore left to migrant workers, workers, a culture in which people routinely overeat. So you could break down all those things he said and say, well, I see if you believe the good life is found in indulgence, why you'd overeat. If you think that the good life is found in pleasure and comfort and convenience, you probably don't like manual labor, so on and so forth. Now... Here's the challenge. The church is set up to display the gospel to the world. If many of you in here have been in the church a long time, one of the things I think the teaching of the church for most of us in this generation has failed us in is giving us an accurate view of the way the Bible says the church who the Bible really says the church is and how the church should function. So the word in theology is ecclesiology. Um, Ecclesia is the, those called out the church. Ecclesiology is the doctrine of the church. I think we've done a very poor job teaching about the doctrine of the church. So in short, let me give you a, a brief lesson of what the Bible says about the church. The Bible says that the gospel has come into the midst of real human life. The gospel being Jesus came, incarnated himself, and in his life, death, and resurrection, freed the world from the oppression of sin. And by faith, you can experience that freedom from the oppressive effects of sin. Now, that's the gospel. The gospel roots itself in culture. And the way in which the culture is supposed to get the gospel is through the church. Now, not through this building. The church is a community of people who believe the gospel. Gospel believing empowers gospel living. So the church is meant to sit in the world in all of its everyday, normal, mundane human interaction. All of life's all for Jesus. And it's meant to be the salt of the earth, the light of the world. A city set upon a hill cannot be hidden. 
the w- culture is supposed to see the gospel. But the problem is the culture comes into the church. It affects the people of the church and it inf- infects the people of the church. This is why churches need good leadership, not good leadership alone, but good leadership that create healthy cultures so that that health can be displayed to a world that experiences sickness far too often. You get that just for now? So now, because of that, that's where Paul comes in right now and says, leadership is so incredibly important. Ricardo talked about that last week. And I acknowledge that false teachers and unhealthy leaders are going to come into your ranks. And so Paul says this, that we need leadership, okay? We need leadership in these three ways. We need modeling leadership, We need convicted leaders, modeling leaders, convicted leaders, and all of life leaders. That's going to guide us through right now. Modeling leaders, convicted leaders, and all of life leaders. So let's get at this. Modeling leaders. The church, in its identity, we said, is a model. By model, I don't mean like without life, but somebody that's there, the salt of the earth, the light of the world, it's meant to model to the world, this is the way unto real life. This is truth, the very way we live our lives and what we say. This is ultimate life that's worthy of the word, capital L, capital I, capital F, capital E. Therefore, if we're a model community, many, meaning to say to the world, life exists by Jesus real life exists in Jesus, all of life is for Jesus, then we've got to have leaders that show the way that say, like Paul did, follow me as I follow Christ. We need modeling leaders. Now, everybody in this room, regardless of what you believe, believe in the power of modeling, or better yet, I should say, you observe the power of modeling. You know, when you look at little kids and people will say, kids are parrots. You've heard that line before? Kids are parrots. The reality is humans are parrots. If you've ever played on an athletic team or you've ever functioned on a team in work, you'll know that there's these moments where somebody says something. It's kind of a line that they like to start saying. And then all of a sudden, everybody starts saying it. And for that whole year, for that whole season, people just keep saying these things. And it's typically humorous or it's a line that they say. You just, you catch it. It's like osmosis. You catch it. Well, if you're a parent, you really know this. Your kids don't always just do what you say. They most often do what you, what? Do, right? So I'll play with my kids a lot and wrestle around with them and play with them and do different things. And this one day when my son, who's eight now, was probably five, we're getting around and all four kids are involved and we're moving. And I turn around this one time and I just shake my booty at him like this, like really. So... I do it once. I have fun. Everybody laughs. Well, now my son does it like 55 times a day. He's eight now and he does it. And every time his mom will be like, Yale, stop. And he'll go, dad does it. And I'm thinking, are you kidding? And then my wife will look at me and she'll go, Tyler, you are a leader. You're a parent and leaders are modelers and what you model, they do. That's fact. Now, in the church, that means we need leaders who are modeling the way of what it is to live by, in, and for Jesus. And yet here, that's where Paul ends in verse 9. He says this. 
He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and able to rebuke those who contradict it. Now, verse 10 is where our section starts. He says this for now for means this for this reason. Because we need modeling leaders because there are many, there are few, no, no, no. There are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Now, this is going to go on this whole section and it's going to talk about the reality that there has been unhealthy leaders who are not teaching the truth that have infiltrated the ranks of the church. And it starts by saying these are arrogant, arrogant people. They're insubordinate. They don't believe in authority. They want to do what they want to do, and they don't care. Later on, it's going to say they don't care because in the end, they're all about themselves. But bottom line is they're empty talkers. They're deceptive. They're promising things they can't deliver upon. And they're especially those of the circumcision party. Now, we don't have time to do this whole study through the New Testament, but this idea of the circumcision party and later on in this passage, when it talks about that they are caught up in Jewish myths and they say that they're about the circumcision party. In essence, here's what these people were saying. They were saying that it's not just about Jesus. We're going to get into this in a little more detail here in a minute, but the gospel, the good news fundamentally is we are in a situation that we cannot fix individually, communally, and totally as our world. And in the end, the gospel is all about God has initiated. He has come and he has fixed it. Revelation 7.10 says salvation belongs to the Lord. It's his property. Nobody else holds it. That's the good news. The good news is when you butt up against life and you know, like, why is it that the things I want to do, I don't do? And the things I don't want to do, I do. And you feel that regardless of who you are here. You feel this reality of there's always something right in the way of it. The Bible would say that that's sin. And it's not just in your individual heart, but it's in our communities and it's in our wider culture that God has come. God alone. It's his. He's the only way he could do it. He came and moved it. What the circumcision party and what these people are doing is saying, you've got to be pure, which is not untrue. But they're saying your purity comes from doing these things that funny enough, they determine. And Paul's going, no way. We cannot let, if we're meant to be this kind of people, unhealthy leaders who are saying untrue things to infiltrate our ranks. We need leaders who model the truth. These people who have infiltrated our ranks, he's very clear, have bad motives. Right here, it's going to say they do it for selfish gain or sordid gain. They have bad motives. It's all about themselves. They have a bad message. It's adding things to the gospel. And ultimately, they have bad fruit. They're liars. They're cheats. They're deceivers. They're manipulators. Whether they recognize it or not. Now, when this happens, when bad leaders come into the ranks, what do we need? John Stott says that what Paul's saying here is when false teachers arise, we need more true teachers. Just in short, if you ever want to change something, 
your family, an organization that you're part of, or culture. Don't just think you change it by standing up and screaming that it needs to change. You change it by starting an alternative, doing something good, modeling it. And then out of the model, it bleeds on other people. You fan that flame and you push that snowball, if you will, and make it bigger and bigger and bigger. You don't just sit and go, they're terrible. They're horrible. You do what's right. Get other people to do what's right. Build a community, build a model, and then move forward. That's what Paul's saying here. Appoint elders, build more good leaders, healthy leaders whose health is coming out of sound truth. But then he says this, we need strong leaders and savvy leaders because ultimately he says there are those who are empty, subordinate, they're empty talkers, they're insubordinate, they're deceivers. And then in verse 11, he says, they must be silenced. Later on, he says that we must rebuke them in verse 13, 11, silence them, 13, rebuke them. Now that takes some strength. That takes courage. That takes conviction. But how do you silence somebody? How do you rebuke them? Do you do that by going, shut your mouth? Again, sorry, I'm a parent of four kids, but I'm just being honest. Like there's so many moments where my kids are really loud, really goofy, at times just stupid, okay? And I can't tell you the number of times that I'm like, shut your mouth. You know how many times it works? Like never, right? They like laugh at you, basically. Like you're a clown, right? That isn't the way it takes like craft to get your kids to be quiet as it does to silence empty talkers and deceitful people. Look at the way Paul does this. He is savvy at the point that he uses culture, their culture upon them. He says in verse 12, he's quoting Epimenides here. And he says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own. So he's saying to them, Listen, I'm speaking to you as Cretans. I'm talking to you about these unhealthy leaders that come into your ranks. One of your own prophets. Now, just so you know, this is not a passage from the Bible he's quoting. Not a passage from the Old Testament. It's now in our Bible because it's in the New Testament. He's quoting a prophet of their time. And he says, one of your own have said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And he goes, this testimony is true. Now, what he's saying, he's going, that's true of your culture, and that's true of these leaders. He's basically looking at these leaders, these unhealthy leaders who are teaching untrue things, and he goes, oh, well, of course, that's so Cretan of you, right? Like, that's so, you are modeling the culture, and yet the church is meant to be a counterculture, an environment that's living in ways that's looking at their godlessness, their idolatry, their level of living that leads to dehumanizing people. And he says, one of your own prophets has said this, the testimony is true. Therefore rebuke them sharply so that they can be kicked out. No, so that they can be sound in faith. Paul is absolutely passionate about being sound in faith, about living into the truth because he cares about people. Okay. Hear me on this. I want to literally wave my hands to make this point. Paul's passion for sound teaching, his reason for rebuking is because he's passionate about people, not because he's passionate about people going, wow, Paul, you're so smart. You're such a good communicator. You're so right. Paul's passion about soundness isn't a passion about being right. 
It's a passion for people. That's why he wants to be right. Is that bad believing leads to bad behavior. It says this right up there in verse 11. This must be silenced because they're upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful, sordid, selfish gain is what that means. What they ought not to teach. What's, why is he saying this is true? Because bad teaching leads to bad living, which disrupts our whole communities. Families, here households, spoke of a much bigger reality. And folks, he's saying very specifically, and leaders are at the center of this. Leaders are at fault for this. Leadership's a reality. The question is, is it good leadership or bad leadership? Bad leadership has bad motives. Bad leadership will have a bad message and bad leadership ultimately leads to bad things happening. So leadership isn't the problem. Now, Jim Chester's quote said this, we can't stand politicians. We don't like police officers. Many of us don't like leadership. My question to you is what do you think and feel about authority? And let me acknowledge something in this room. When I ask you that question, what do you think about authority? I wholly and fully 100% recognize that there are many people in this room have had horrible experiences with authority. There are people of you in this room who've had fathers who were meant to lead you through love, who did horrific things to you. Whether it was in silencing you, whether it was in being silent to you, whether it was through verbal abuse or physical abuse, many of you have experienced that at the hands of bosses, at the hands of teachers, And sadly, tons of people have experienced that at the hands of the church. But I wanted to tell you something. Leadership is inevitable. Our passion and prayer has to be, God, give us healthy leaders. And in the end, what would the Bible define as healthy leadership? Well, one is what I said to you before. Modeling Paul is a passion for people. But here's what leaders do. Leaders are not elevated on a pedestal. Leaders in the end are the lead confessors and lead repenters. Leaders, true leaders, are lead confessors because they are human too. First John's very clear that if any of us say we're without sin, we lie. Now you're around a lot of people, maybe in church, where leaders may never say they're sinless, but in the end they act like it and they want you to treat them like it. Don't go to a church like that. Don't sit in a community like that. Confront that. Figure out ways to do it right. Because in the end, I, Ricardo, every one of your elders, every one of your bosses, the Bible's clear. We have sin and we need to lead the way in confessing our sin and in repenting of our sin, which means we need people. So my question is how you feel about authority while recognizing how much it's failed so many of us which is Paul's passion here. On one hand, to not let there be catastrophic failure that leads to the upsetting of households, but at the same time for you to understand there is going to be failure. There is going to be failure. And these leaders need to confess it and repent of it in the end. And it can't be failure that their weaknesses are so thick that it leads to the upsetting of whole communities and carnage everywhere ultimately around them. So here's my next question to you on that. The question of authority, but then my question to you is what kind of leader leaders do you want? Because truth be told, our culture's sick in this. And many people just want the guy that's really charismatic in the front. This was true in the Bible, right? 
The nation of Israel wanted Saul because he was ahead above everybody else and his muscles were big. Talk to me, Saul. Lead the way. And we crave that. I don't want to go to a church. That guy's not a very good communicator. I don't want to, like, and, but don't ever ask the question, is he godly? Are, the, are he or she godly? Are they good leaders? And what is a good leader? Let's redefine leadership, not according to strength or intelligence or the craft of the tongue, but let's do it based upon Christ. Because truth be told, many people sit in this room, keep championing the very thing that will lead to the destruction of our communities, maybe your family, maybe your life. And let me tell you, if you are around a leader that needs you to look at their muscles or tell you how good they are or constantly is trying to put you in place, they're not a leader. If you need a leader to tell you how big their muscles are, how crafty their tongue is, how amazing they are, how much they need you to tell you how much... you love them. That's narcissism. That's not godliness. That's focusing on yourself. It's all about me. You know, you want to know where narcissism comes from? Insecurity. They're unbelievably insecure human beings and they use you to give them goosebumps. That's what I need. That's manipulation, folks. That's sordid gain. And they use you also for your money, but we'll get to that in a minute. So we need modeling leaders. The next thing is we need convicted leadership. We need leaders who are convicted by what is sound, what is healthy, and what is true. In verse nine, they must hold firm to the trustworthy word. Verse nine, sound doctrine. They must be sound in faith. Verse 13, they must stand in the truth. That's the implication of those who are turning away from the truth. Leaders who are good and healthy are sound and they're convicted in what is sound, healthy, and true. I want to say this again. Leadership is inevitable, but leaders have to have a plan. They have to have a process. They have to have a vision of what execution is, and they have to be willing to hold those they are leading accountable to it, first and foremost, themselves. They have to hold themselves accountable to it. I was on the phone this week with a friend of mine who is a coach in a professional sports organization. And he was lamenting and asking me, hey man, help talk me off the ledge because I'm about to snap. And in the end, he was like, we have a plan. We have a process. We call the team to execute this process. But in the end, there's a few people who don't want to buy into the plan of the process. Who do you think those were? Those who were paid the most. Those who the organization felt like they're indispensable. And yet the organizations had them for some time and never won at the level they want to win. So we began to talk about it and say, in the end, if you as a community have a plan and a process, a conviction, and in the end, you don't hold everyone to it. The result is then everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Because if those three can do whatever they want, regardless of what they're paid, then I don't care what I'm, I'm paid. There obviously isn't a plan or a process. So then in the end, nobody executes it. And it's really hard to hold anybody accountable to it. Leaders have to be convicted. And here's what I want you to see very clearly. This is the passion of Paul in this section. He is saying godly leaders are convicted on Christ. Because they're convicted on Christ, they're convicted on the reality that he came, 
lived, died, was raised again, and ascended to heaven. They're convicted by the gospel, and they're saying anything that gets added to the truth that he has done it all has catastrophic consequences. Okay? Here's what it means, he's done it all, is a word the Bible uses called grace. It's entirely based upon what he has done, not based upon what I have done. They are leading people away from the truth. These unhealthy, unsound leaders are coming in, leading people away from this by saying, in the end, you've also got to do this. And in the end, you can't be pure unless you do these things and you don't do these things. Now, here's the problem with adding anything to Christ like that. Here's the problem. One, it's man-made, okay? If you go back to the end of this passage, he's very clear to say the fundamental problem with this is they are turning to Jewish myths, verse 14, and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. Not the commands of God, the commands of people. These are myths, they're not true, it's the commands of people. Here's what happens. When you add things to the gospel, you add things to Christ, in the end, you marginalize or minimize, limit what godliness really is. Now, follow me this on for, for a minute because you don't focus on everything because in the end, this is all about sordid gain, shameful gain, which means it's all about them. So here's what they do. They bring up the commands of people and they go, here are the four things we're really going to focus on that you have to do. Here are the four things that you cannot do. And then they focus on those. They're the commands of men. Why do they develop external commands? Because they can control you then. If they can define it's those four things and those four things, in the end, it's all about their power, their gaining things, which we'll get to a minute, and your manipulation, ultimately. Now, follow me on this. Here's how it limits godliness. Is Jesus comes on the scene and he says, I am the definition of godliness. Now, if Jesus is the center point who lived a real life and you get to read about him in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you're watching him, I promise you, no matter if you've been a Christian five months or 50 years, Jesus disrupts us all the time. If Paul's right in the book of Romans, that God's plan is to make us like Jesus, that before the foundations of the time, his passion was to make those who believe like Christ. When you look at Christ and go, that's who I'm supposed to be like and what I'm supposed to live like. And you set him out as the ultimate supreme example and definition of what it means to be human, a la godly. It never stops. It's huge. It's massively disruptive. And at those moments, here's what happens. You go, I can't possibly do it. And he goes, you're right. With man, this is impossible. With God's, all things are possible. Pray. Then you sin. And it's this moment where you go, man, if that's the goal, if that's what holiness is, I need a savior and I need a helper. And he says, Jesus is the savior. I've given you the Holy Spirit as your helper. Continue to move forward. And all of a sudden, what you're called to is like this. Well, what that does to a leader because remember I said whether you've been a Christian five months or 50 years, is that leader is, what did we say? Leaders are the chief confessors and repenters, which means the leader, like Paul does to Timothy, says, I'm the chief among sinners, which breeds a humility in them of I need God and I need other people. Truth be told, in so many environments in the United States of America and in the church, leadership is set up 
to prove to you they don't need you. They don't need anybody else. You need them and all those other people need them. And ultimately what it sets itself up is they don't need God. True leaders show their vulnerability and say all the time, I need you. I need the uniqueness of who you are. They don't view your uniqueness, your unique gifting, or your past experience as an impediment to them or as a threat to them. They see it as a resource and an asset because they've been destructed by Christ in a good way, humbled by Christ in a good way. But when you add the gospel, it limits, fundamentally limits godliness. And it says, I don't need God's power. Now, here's the other thing it does. If you add things to the gospel, it commoditizes you. It turns you into a commodity. You become a resource of manipulation to get your stuff and whatever you have to offer. Here's what I mean. Think about this for a minute. If I set up a religion and I go, this actually is about what you do. Then what do I do right on the backside of that? If it's about what you do and here's the things you need to do it. And they only cost a hundred bucks a piece and they begin to sell you stuff. I want to say something that is not biblical truth, okay? That's not biblical truth. But one of the reasons Redemption Church puts the giving boxes in the back is to really live into, this is not biblical mandate, okay? Hear me on this. So if you go to another church and they pass the plate, they're not in sin. One of the reasons we do is because Corinthians is very clear that you should be giving out of your own compulsion, that leaders shouldn't be guilting you into this reality. They should be saying, Christ is so extreme on your behalf. He who was rich for your sake became poor. If then you so believe in this service and it serves you, you can, it takes money to get into this. That's not what these leaders do. These leaders say, actually, there's all this other stuff you have to do to be pure. And in order to do it, you need these things and we're going to charge you for it. Folks, you got to see that. Grace is not just an alternative to all the other religions. Grace is the fundamental path that leads to flourishing the fundamental thing that levels the playing field that makes leaders and parishioners the same human beings in quest for truth. That's only found in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. The only thing leaders are leading in is confession and repentance and following saying, follow me as we follow Christ building cultures of health that gets all over all of us so that we can move forward in that reality. The only way you get that is to be convicted by Christ and Christ alone convicted in the gospel plus nothing. John Stott, who's one of my favorite leaders now dead, says there's three validity tests to find out if a message is true. Here's what they are. Three validity tests. Is its origin divine or human? Is this human commands or actually does it come from divine origin? Is it revelation or just tradition? Like, does this actually come from the scriptures? Is this about God revealing himself to man? Or is this just what you're setting up to say you want to do? Is its essence inward or outward? The Bible is really clear that this isn't what happens in our actions comes out of our heart. Jesus says this to the Pharisees. It's not what goes into a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of a man or woman that makes him unclean. For out of the heart comes murder, theft, adultery, immorality, lying, cheating, stealing, oppression, is it desperate inward or outward, spiritual or ritual? Last, is it the result of a transformed life or merely a human task? Because I'm telling you, the gospel's all about transformation. It's not just about behavior modification. 
It's about you fundamentally being transformed. It's about our families being transformed, our communities, our churches, our cultures, our world. It is a full-blown inside-out restoration project. That's the gospel. We need modeling leadership and convicted leadership. Here's the last thing. We need all of life leaders. This is probably my favorite section of this passage. He says, to the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him with their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Let me just start by saying this. One thing that's clear in that passage is that you can profess to know God, but your life shows otherwise. That should be applied to everybody in this room. But I can't but say, make sure that test is put upon those who are called to be leading in the church. Profession in the end, talk is mere talk. A little less talk, a little more action. If the action's pure and humble and true and coming out of a transformed life, not just behavior modification. But here's the reality. When he says to the pure, all things are pure. To those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Here's what he's saying. False teaching is like a leech. Okay? God made the world and he made it good. He says, it's good, it's good, it's good. He makes man, it's not good for that they be alone. Puts them together, it's good. Sin comes into the world, latches itself to God's creation. It didn't create anything. Sin doesn't create jack. It takes that which is there and twists it and distorts it. It's like a leech, okay? Now, if you're a leech teacher or a leech leader, what you do is you walk in and go, no, the stuff's bad. So this is like a child going to a toy, ripping off the arm of a doll, taking the hair and pulling it out, punching it a few times, and then looking at it and going, this doll stinks. No, you just corrupted the doll, right? This is exactly what's happening in this passage is this. The things of earth are not corrupt. We corrupt the things of earth. Now, follow the logic here. He's saying, to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. In the end, they have to go, don't taste, don't touch, don't go there, don't be there, don't do this, don't do that. Because in the end, they're insecure, narcissistic leaders that are trying to control you, and we buy into it. And then we take the stuff of earth, and we go, that's corrupt. Rather than like, no, no, no. That's there. You can corrupt it. Now, in the end, hear this. Let me give you a couple examples. Video games. Are video games corrupt? Some might be. You might be, but overall, no. Overall, video games are not corrupt. We corrupt them by getting addicted to them, by playing them at the expense of people, by playing them at expense of ourselves. But in the end, can you play a video game well? Alcohol. In the end, can I partake of a beer or a glass of wine or a shot of scotch or a Moscow mule? If that's your deal, right? Can I so partake of that in a way that's honoring to myself, to others, and to God? Well, sure. But the minute I get sloshed, it's not honoring to me, honoring to people, honoring to the people that are on the road when I get behind the car. Like, I distort that. Now, in the end, you go, well, what do you mean? Everything's like that? What about pornography? Well, pornography is already in itself a corruption of God's good gift of sex. But a Moscow mule, I can't even believe I'm using that example, but a Moscow mule is God's good gift. I mean, wine rejoices the heart, right? A game that somebody made in the end can be a great gift 
to creation. We corrupt it. Now, in the end, to the pure, all things are pure. What then makes us pure? And how are all things pure? All things are pure for this reason. Christ has made the world and made it good. Who are the pure? Well, Jesus says very clearly that blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Now, hear me on this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall be, see God. The craving of all of us should be, even if you're an atheist in the room, if you went, is there a God, do you want to know him? The craving of all of us should be, I want to see God. Well, you have to be pure in heart. How then do we get pure when we've just recognized even leaders have sin? How do we get pure when First John says, if any of you says you're without sin, you're a liar? The Bible's answer is one thing. The one thing he calls leaders to be convicted on. You are made pure by the only one that was fully and purely and truly pure, Jesus himself. Our purity comes from faith and union of being in Christ. We become like Christ by being in Christ. We become like Christ by being with Christ. We become like Christ by knowing our lives are made for Christ. That's it. So whether you sit in this room and you go, I've been a Christian a really long time. You want to know how to get pure? Ask. God, would you so make me pure in Christ? Surround, number two, surround yourself with people that are pursuing Christ with you because you're shaped by people that are around you, by them looking at you and going, hey, something's off, by rescuing you from going away from Christ and turning you to the truth. And then practice habits that will put you in the presence of God. Practice habits. The scriptures are powerful. Community is powerful. Worship is powerful. Because in the end, God has made you to experience purity. It just doesn't happen by man-made rules. It happens by his grace and his grace alone. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace and mercy to us. I pray that we would encounter true truth, which is gracious truth. I pray, Jesus, that you would provide for us a community who believes and lives out this gracious reality and this gracious truth. And God, give us leaders who can lead the way in confession, who can lead the way in repentance, who can lead the way in what true life really is, which is found in Christ and Christ alone. In Christ, his name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.